Hey everybody, my name is Isaac. This is the Colony Drop Podcast, where we talk about everything regarding Gundam, from the models to the shows to anything else that's new and interesting. I'm here with my co-pilot, Brian. Hello everybody. Alright Isaac, what are we talking about today? Today we're going to talk about a recently released series called Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans. Yeah, specifically season one of Iron-Blooded Orphans. That's right. There's two seasons, folks. It was a uh, series that ran, I think it started in 2015, right, Brian? Correct. It aired from October 2015 to March of 2016. So season one had 25 episodes, I believe. Nice. And season two followed up in October of 2016, so one year later. And for you uh, longtime Gundam fans or you uh, educated Gundam fans who are in the know... This series is not in the Universal Century. It's its own standalone timeline. Right. So this takes place in the year 323 of the post-disaster era, which why don't you, why don't you tell them what the, the disaster was, Isaac? The disaster was a war of gargantuan proportions, Brian. Okay. <laughs> it was a war involving Earth, Mars, the colonies. There were mobile suits. There were Gundams. There were mobile weapons, mobile armors. It was just mayhem, Brian. Okay. Would you would you call it a calamity war, perhaps? I would call it a calamity war completely in every sense of the phrase. So yeah, we're we're gonna review season one of Iron Blooded Orphans today. As a reminder, this series is available via streaming on Netflix, Hulu, Crunchyroll, and Funimation. So nice. you can pretty much find it everywhere. And then it's it's also available on Blu-ray. Let me just get the ball rolling here, Brian. What did you think of this series going into it before you saw it? What kind of opinion did you have in your head, or what, how did you think it was going to go? Um, I didn't really know much about it, so I watched it after the fact, um, probably not too long ago, maybe six months ago or so. I remember when it was airing, and the only thing I really knew about it was seeing the images of Gundam, uh, of the main Gundam in the series, Barbados. Barbados. Uh, if you just look at that, that Gundam, it has a very different look True. than yeah. typical Gundams. Just, so just looking at that, I expected something slightly different, maybe. Interesting. Um, and Interesting. I think that's kind of what I got, right? Yeah, definitely. Season one is... I think this season and series by extension is um, very different than almost every other Gundam series. And I say that as somebody who started this series and sort of went into it with dragging my feet in a way. I'm going to be honest. I looked at this series and I was like, oh, this looks terrible. <laughs> but but I could just, play just on Just based Netflix. on the designs or what? No, no, on a lot of things. We'll go into okay. this. All right. <laughs> on a lot of things. Number one, it wasn't the Universal Century. So I, yeah. I, I kind of prepared myself for, okay, they were doing really experimental things with this season. And it's going to be weird. Get ready, Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing was some of the first art I saw was... I think this was like way before it got released or dubbed. It it was uh, the, the shirtless mobile suit pilots. And mm. I kind of just rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, great. This is going to be a fan service series or something oh. like that. We're, it's going to be Gundam Wing without shirts. <laughs> they're they're going to be like the, the hip boy band. And wow, I was like, you were wrong. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. <laughs> I was cl- I'm clearly coming off as somebody that's just negative, walking into something <laughs> new. <laughs> but in my defense, I was processing in my head how they could build mobile suits, put so much money and design into their their engineering, and not design a cooling system for the pilots. <laughs> the pilots had to pilot them without suits or without shirts because they just overheat. I couldn't understand it, but once you start the series, they do explain why they don't wear shirts yeah, sometimes. Pretty quickly, actually. And they actually don't wear sh- I mean, sometimes they wear shirts a lot. <laughs> it's just not all the time. 
Um, so maybe before we get into it, we should have the disclaimer. Isaac has seen both seasons. I have only seen season one, and we're doing this review now on purpose because I would like to see how that difference maybe influences some of our opinions. Or if at all. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I won't be spoiling season two for anybody listening or anything like that. I'll keep it strictly season one. But on that note, we are going to spoil pretty much everything about season one. So if yeah. you want to watch Iron-Blooded Orphans, you should probably go watch it first and then come back and listen. So. And if you don't care, just keep listening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe if you don't care, this review will, will make you want to watch the show. Because I think it's actually totally worth watching. Absolutely. As somebody who went into this season not being too excited to watch it, I have to say this is a pretty great season of Gundam. If you're a Gundam fan, Mobile Suit fan, uh, Mecha fan, you would be missing out to not watch this uh, self-contained story. I agree. Yeah. So let's start going down on some categories. So maybe we should start with, I guess, the story overall. Let's do it. Did you enjoy the story? I feel like there's different aspects to the story, right? There's what is right. your story at a high level, and then did you execute on that story? Yeah. I'm going to check all the boxes on this one. I felt like this was a very well-done story. The pacing is great. Again, this is a, a Gundam series that's only two seasons, so they had to get it done right. All the beats are there. There aren't too many episodes that are really dragging on. or I just felt like it was a very well-done story in a lot of ways because... As I said, it's a very contained story. It's really focused on a, a small group of people, and they're almost always on Mars or Earth. They briefly go to the colonies, but um, this might be one of the only stories in Gundam where they're not really involved in the colonies too much. What do you think about that, Brian? That was pretty uh, surprising for me, but it was done well. I agree. There was so little interaction with the colonies, with the exception of the, the Dort I believe it was called yeah. Dort part yeah, of the story, which actually a pretty key part of the story. But yeah. I didn't feel like we spent an inordinate amount of time on the Dort colony. But we spend so little time with the colonies in general. I feel like that had to have been done deliberately to maybe make it feel a little different. Yeah, I'm going to completely agree with you there. At first, just how, how much time we were on Mars, how much time we were on Earth. And part of me was like, well, how can this be Gundam? There's no colonies. But it ended up being a really great season. I really enjoyed it. And it was a breath of fresh air that we weren't zipping around colonies, watching colonies get nuked or <laughs> you know, <laughs> fall and all that. You know, I was like, wow, for once, it shows that <laughs> I guess Gallahorn, um, the bad guys in the series, yeah, they're, they got a pretty good grip on the colonies. They're not going to be, <laughs> you know, needing to start slapping them around left and right. And um, Tekadin, the our, our organization of heroes, our main characters in the uh, the story, the protagonists, they're not on the scale where they're going to be leading groups of colonies or invading multiple <laughs> colonies at once. This this is a very small mercenary organization. <laughs> yeah, they're a lovable band of child soldiers, I suppose. Or uh, as you said in our last podcast, Brian, what'd you say? Uh, a band of misfits and oh, oh yeah, well that was damaged how, uh, children or something. Yeah, that, that was how Peter Cullen, uh, the voice of Optimus Prime, describes the crew of White Base oh, in, right. in the original uh, Mobile Suit Gundam trailer for Toonami. He calls <laughs> them a a crew of orphans and rejects. <laughs> Did anything stick out in the storyline that was kind of like a crowning moment of awesome for you? Crowning moment of awesome. Mm. What was a couple highlights that, that you really enjoyed this season? Definitely everything involving Ayn, the character Ayn, <laughs> and how he just snowballed into this tragic monster by the yeah. end of the show. A tragic villain, if you're listening. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. 
So sure. I think overall, this show did not beat you over the head with exposition, and it no. generally revealed everything to you in a sort of steadily paced, logical manner. All right. So, for yeah. example, in the beginning, there is an opening shot of the the Gundam Barbados, and you don't know its name, but it's it's already in the background, and I think it's in like a mechanic hangar or something. And it's very different than maybe other Gundam series that revolves around children. Like, these kids are already around the Gundam. They already have it. You get the the whiskers, Alaya Vignana system. The the whiskers <laughs> related to the Alaya Vignana system get, have a good subtle intro. You see, I think it's Mika doing some sit-ups. You see the holes in his back. Um, and when he first turns on the Barbados, it has a number. And so that indicates to you that there's probably more Gundams out there. Or at least more things like Barbados. Exactly. Uh, and then they slowly reveal, they drip the information to you about the Calamity War. And so overall, I thought it was, like you said, very well paced. They gave you the information you needed to get through the episodes. Not too much, not too little. But the one thing that was confusing to me was uh, McGillis Fareed and like just mm. what his plan was the whole time. Because he was playing a lot of 3D chess. And I think <laughs> one of my crowning, what would you call it? One of my... Uh, a crowning moment of awesome. Crowning, crowning moment of awesome for this series was finally understanding his his motivation because I think yeah. in the middle I was a little confused. And maybe we'll get to that a little bit later when we talk about characters. Right. Um, yeah. But by the end of the show, I just realized that this dude was a complete psychopath. He he, he had one goal and he was gonna stomp on anyone to get to that goal. So absolutely, yeah. I, I think it's at the final episode where he finally reveals his plan yeah. and why he's been doing everything for the last 25 hours <laughs> yes yes yeah but um what stuck out to me well this kind of dips into character a bit but um our pilot is on episode one minute one he's already a pilot uh, it's not a teenager thrown into a cockpit it's not a student that you know was given the access card to a gundam it's not um you know anything like that it's he's actually a military pilot i thought that was pretty interesting for the series to do um also how brutal it was right off the bat you know in one of the earliest episodes we just see mikazuki he executes Mm -hmm. (laughs) the guy i mean the guy kind of coming sure but wow they don't pull any punches in this show they just start you off i think it's episode two or something he just executes this guy that he didn't like guys unarmed unarmed not in a mobile suit either <laughs> this was like in person like because you're because right he just took a pistol and like shot him in the head yep. um yeah that was in episode three not only was he unarmed but i believe he was tied up and yeah. he was laying <laughs> face down on the floor and he, the guy was, uh, I think he was the, the boss of like first group or whatever it was called. Um, right. Yeah. Not, uh, not before nice they guy. were called. Yeah. Before they were called Tekadin, uh, they yeah. were called what group three, I think. Um, yeah. The, uh, was it the, the security corporation? So like yeah. That. Well, G- Gallerhorn had, had attacked the base and group one kind of, they retreated cowardly and yeah. left group three or Tekadin to, to fend for themselves. And so, you know, they, they didn't expect Tekadin to live, but they did. And then when they came back, they were obviously upset about it. So they, they tied them all up, and Orgo was leader of, of Tekadin, was or arguing with the group one boss. And uh, yeah, he just, as he was arguing with him, Mika just went up and shot him in the head. So, <laughs> and then on top of that, the first guy who spoke up right after Mika killed that guy, Mika shot him too. <laughs> so <laughs> they really don't, they really don't F around these, these, uh, Tekadin children. No, when there's when there's new bosses in the company, you better <laughs> yeah. you better sit up straight and hope you don't get 
called on and don't speak out of turn. For sure. Yeah, brutality, yeah. I would say, overall was a theme. It yeah. had to have been intentional, I guess. This was definitely one of, if not the most brutal Gundam series. Definitely up there, yeah. It's, dare I say, it, it was a very child-focused storyline. Trigger warnings, I guess. McGillis's backstory, uh, that was very much about child abuse. Mikazuki's and the, all, everyone that's a human, what's the term? Human waste? Human debris. Yeah. Human debris. Or at least it was human debris. I, so I watched the show subbed. I think you probably watched oh, it dubbed. But no, it was human debris in I'm the I'm pretty sub. sure you're right. It was called human debris in the dub too. These human debris people are just, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a rough world out yeah. in Mars. Mar- Mars is uh, is under like the worst possible economy because there's just like <laughs> unemployed orphan children that are forced to be child soldiers or or worse, I guess. It was just a very brutal storyline, but it really works. And um, you really enjoy Tekadin as a group. They've got such a good diversity of characters. Orga's a, a really interesting leader. He's a very uh, emotional and uh, compassionate leader. You really do feel the stress of him trying to keep everything together. Mikazuki's a pretty stoic character. Overall, they all did a really good job in the in the storyline, I feel, as far as uh, balancing it out with different character personalities that, that really work together in a, in a good storyline. Agree. And this is also one of those shows that if they wanted to come back to it later, there's plenty of material to mine. Like maybe we could see the Calamity War one day. I mean, there's no reason not to. It would absolutely be like a Gundam fest against mobile yeah, armor. for sure. Yeah, even if it was a OVA or, you know, it doesn't have to be a 50-episode TV series, but mm-hmm. plenty of stuff to come back to. So there's a lot we of lore. We know how the Calamity War ends, but we don't know, the, you know, the battles for it. The for specifics. all we know, Yeah, for all we know, uh, Mars used to be much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> that might explain why Earth is so oppressive. Speaking of uh, oppressive, what did you think about Galhorn as the villains with our long history of different Gundam empires and states and organizations that have been uh, plaguing earth and innocent people throughout the existence of the Gundam franchise. Well, I, I thought they were pretty good villains. They appeared more noble than a lot of villains. Like just the yeah. colors they wear are not typical villain colors, right? Like they wear, I, now I, I guess I don't know what their official uniform is, but if I had to right. go off memory, I would say their colors are like blue, white, and gold. And those are yeah. traditionally very heroic colors. Yeah, I really like that. To, to me, I saw that as Gallahorn just being the epitome of arrogance, that they visually look like heroes, but they're just such a brutal, corrupt organization. Yeah, <laughs> agree. It was a good change of pace, I thought, as far as villains go. They were not a, a rebellious group of colonies. They're, they were almost like, a, I guess, a mirror universe titans in a way. They're essentially a, a UN, right, that just has a monopoly on was Ahab reactors and, and Gundams, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Gundams yeah, Ahab, and yeah. mobile suits and weapons. So they're, they're the biggest guns around. They're based on Earth, and nobody can really stand up to them, so they're the government now. It's <laughs> right. They're what happens when the victors never lose power. Yeah, pretty much. They just grow corrupt over time. and Yeah. yeah. I mean, literally, their whole government is just the descendants of the actual warriors from the Calamity War. It's very aristocratic, I guess, in a way. Maybe they kind of melded the Titans and Ramafeller from Gundam Wing. With some suits that look very Crossbone Vanguard-like now a and then. A bit, yeah. yeah. Should we transition into the suits now? <laughs> now uh, let's do, let's do characters first. Okay, let's go for it. Let's do the Tekadin people first. Let's um, do them. We'll go by group. How about yeah. our uh, protagonist, Mikazuki? Mika. Um, Mika. Mika, Mika, Mika. 
he didn't necessarily have a a ton of you know, range of emotions. <laughs> yeah, that might be giving him too much credit. <laughs> He's a very stoic character. <laughs> Orga actually has more emotions than Mika, oh, but um, everybody, yeah. But they sort of do explain that you know Mika's a bit more of a uh, buttoned down not cold-hearted soldier he's not a cold-hearted guy but he's willing to do the job that needs to be done and he's very low to protecting his friends and i guess as a lifetime as a child soldier he's just kind of been numbed to an extent he's a very interesting character i thought it was good that he didn't have to rely on magic powers more or less which is what some pilots are like new types instead he was more just about his own skills and having to learn through combat experience and definitely working with the rest of Tekken and teamwork was a big part of this series it's not the lone mobile suit just invincible crushing the enemy it was uh, very much a team effort and all the other supporting uh, pilots got to shine too what'd you think about uh, Mikazuki if brutality is a theme of the show he is the the poster child for the brutality in the show because like we said he murdered the guy laying yeah. laying down on the ground there's a part in the show when Orga's having his uh breakdown after biscuit dies mika's trying to talk him out of it and he asks him weird questions like who should i kill next like mika is is also kind of a, a psychopath but he's like <laughs> one that's on your side and yeah and good-hearted i guess He's a weapon. He's he's a weapon. The yeah. pilot's a weapon. And in his defense, didn't they have to teach him how to like to read and write along with like a lot of Tekken characters? It did. Kudelia, yeah. uh, I'd say the main female character in the series, she she Absolutely. does teach all the Tekken kids, including Mika, uh, to to read and write. Man, how effective could the security corporation, security company, how how effective could they have been if a lot of their pilots couldn't read or write? Like, what if you're <laughs> what if you're going over like battle plans and there's numbers or or notes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little strange, right? Yeah, I mean, you have they, to... they really, these people, well, I guess that, that explains the human debris, right? They were literally cannon fodder. They'd probably be put into a, a mobile worker that had some guns strapped to it, which is little, <laughs> it's a glorified tank. Yes. And then they'd be told to charge with the rest of their group and, into enemies. <laughs> oh, the mobile worker, the, the, the ball of the post-disaster yeah. era. I like how Mika's <laughs> dream is to, to run a farm. Like, he has this wholesome dream to just be a farmer. Like, that's all he wants. Just leave the kid alone and, and yeah. give him give him a farm. How did that come about? Is it just because on Mars they were they were pretty close to a farm? So maybe during training he he would drive by and he'd be like, yeah, it'd be nice to sit around and watch the I plants assume, grow. I assume that on that farm he would grow his prunes that he likes. His Martian prunes. That he, they keep him yeah. regular. He's, he's a weird kid, man. So for those of you who have watched uh, Gundam Double O, there's this one line that's always quoted where the main character sets in and always says, I am Gundam. I feel like Mika is is much more I am Gundam than Setsuna is. If Setsuna was a focused, trained to be a Gundam pilot, single-minded killing machine, Mikazuki is that to even a younger level almost yeah. because this is all he's really known. He doesn't have like you know the parents who are engineers at like the, at the Gundam factory or something like that, and that's why he's so good at the Gundam. He's been a child soldier, clearly mistreated, and 
brutality is all he knows, but you still end up rooting for him in this show. Even me, somebody who usually roots for the bad guys in the Gundam series. Um, Isaac has a heart after all. Yeah, usually. I'm like, wow, okay. I can I can get on board with Tekken. It was Tekken was better than I thought. That's how you know this show's good. When I start supporting the good guys. <laughs> Tekken was a pretty good organization. I, I enjoyed Mikazuki and uh, I'll put him on my list of uh, Gundam pilots I, I really like. I really liked him as well. The only downside, I think, is that based on his nature, he's probably not the most interesting character in the show. No, but he works well in the ensemble. I agree. Yeah, right. So I could see that being a criticism. Speaking of most interesting character, who is the most interesting character in your eyes? Ooh, the most interesting of... Season one. It probably depends on how you define interesting, but probably the the most interesting was McGillis for me, just because I didn't know what... The whole time I was trying to figure out what this guy was doing. The man's a mystery. (laughs) (laughs) How about Orga, the leader of our pals, Tekadin? You know what? I'd say Orga was my choice for the most interesting character this season. Sure, McGillis is shrouded in mystery and he's, you know, always has his hand on his chin while he's scheming away. Um, But Orga, you got to really see his progression in this season almost as if he was the co-protagonist or maybe even the main protagonist, just not in the Gundam. But it was great watching him evolve to be, you know, a leader and uh, really had to face a lot of pressuring situations to try to keep everyone in Tekken alive. I thought Orga was a was a great character. You, visually, it's an interesting design. Uh, you look at him, you don't really think that's going to be sort of the, the ringleader for the good guys. You, you think it maybe be somebody much older, <laughs> older look, <laughs> older looking, different looking. Uh, or it looks like he'd be like the, the loud brash guy on like a final fantasy game or something. Right. He, <laughs> yeah. I think it's that hair. Yeah, definitely. I thought Orgo was great. He was a really good leader. He, he's a leader you'd want. I think, I mean, he might make mistakes and stuff, but he definitely cares about everybody underneath him. That's what I liked about Orga. I agree. I think uh, Orga, along with Kudelia, probably have the most complete character arc in yeah. terms of how much they change from the beginning uh, to the end of the show. I think you said it well. You can definitely feel the stress that Orga has throughout oh, the man. show of trying to keep this this <laughs> ragtag group of uh, child soldiers together. You really feel for this guy. It's an unenviable <laughs> position. I mean, I mean yes, it is. He sends these kids into battle and they die, and he, you know, he and he takes the blame all the time. That's just horrific. So, like we said, this show is really brutal. I would say it, it has a lot of teeth. And what did you call it again? My crowning moment of Crown, uh, crowning moment of awesome. Crowning moment of awesome to me for for the show. When I knew, I was like, I can't believe they just did that. Was when they killed Biscuit. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. And that just tore orga apart i think for at least two episodes this dude was locked in his room basically zoned out of his mind you know, crying yeah. on the inside because his best friend uh was was murdered in front of him right and, yeah and and biscuit definitely had that aura of this is a character who's too good to die and we won't right. we wouldn't dare kill him but when they killed biscuit oh man i i couldn't believe it i I turned off the show and I was like, I can't, I can't believe Biscuit died. I, I can't. Why would you do that? You walk to the kitchen and pour yourself a, a few fingers yeah. of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess I'm kind of getting into Biscuit here, but but Biscuit's role in the show is just to help Orga's, uh, you know, character development. And so right, yeah. after that point, that's when Orga has to really mature as a leader and really commit to this getting Cudelia to uh, 
Arbrow or however you pronounce it. As we transition to Biscuit, I completely agree. Biscuit had like this bumble of innocence around him. He had like a, a, a bunch of siblings that he cared for, right? He, he was they, such a exactly. nice guy. He had the like, nicest <sighs> sisters. They were named Cookie and Cracker. You, <laughs> I don't they know lived you... on Mars in this like nice little farm and they brought the Tekken yeah. people oh, food. God. And then <laughs> they killed Biscuit. How could you kill the sweet big brother of Cookie and Cracker? Oh, come on. Oh, God, those names. Those Martian names. <laughs> and that was after they, they showed his brother hang himself. Yeah, like, yeah Jesus. Oh, God, so brutal. <laughs> the killing of Biscuit, it would feel like, I'm not sure if you watch Lost or if our listeners did. If you watch Lost, there's a character named Hurley that everybody loves. It would be like Hurley getting killed. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's just not done. You don't you don't kill a, a fan favorite character like that. Somebody that's pretty innocent and uh, the the kind of happy go lucky guy of the group. But man, they just slaughter Biscuit to show that this show yeah. isn't messing around. Anybody can die, and they can die brutally. Yeah, and not only do they kill Biscuit, but they they dedicate like a whole episode to showing you exactly how Biscuit died, so that you really remember that. Yep, Biscuit's dead, and he's not coming back. Yeah. <laughs> But you know what? That shows us that the stakes were raised. Agree. Yeah. That was probably when I was like, okay, the show means business and I have to like it now. I hated that Biscuit died, but man, did I respect them for doing that. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. All <sighs> right, how about Akihiro? Okay, let me say this about Akihiro. I wanted more Akihiro. Akihiro, I felt, was a pretty interesting character. He's very angsty. He's almost like a bigger Mikazuki, I felt like, in a way. Like, if Mikazuki was older and more experienced, he'd be a lot like Akihiro. But I thought Akihiro was a pretty awesome character. He's kind of their their team tank, right? He's, yeah. <laughs> he's, 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 the, he's the tank on the team. He's going to be the kind of the, the big, rough, gruff brother, the, the bear. You know, you don't want to mess with him. He's not too fast and maybe not too bright, but, man, he'll fight to the death, and he's got a pretty strong mobile suit, and... Man, he's a beast, but um, I, re- I really enjoyed his character. And once again, pulling in the, the pulling the tragedy card here in Gundam uh, Iron-Blooded Orphans, the the plot line with his uh, brother was very tragic. Oh, it was just it was just so brutal. Another human debris story. He was separated from his brother, and, and as soon as we heard that story, we we meet the brother. I think in the next episode or two, which maybe was a little too quick, but after that story, you knew you were going to meet the brother. And man, the brother has just been abused for years, and he's basically lost it. And they get into this fight with the, the people who are in charge of his brother, and he tries to save his brother, and he, he can't do it. And, it, and the oh god, they, his brother ends up getting killed by a giant hammer, and it's just it's terrible. <laughs> um, but yeah. then Akihiro, this dude, he has the balls to say no. They end up capturing the the suit that killed his brother, and he ends up piloting it. He, you know, gives us some new armor and repaints it, but wow, that was unexpected to me. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd, I'd want to pilot the suit that killed my brother, but mobile suits are hard to come by, Brian. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, Ga- Galahorn's got a monopoly. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I definitely wanted more Akihiro. I think he was maybe my my favorite Tekken member after Biscuit. Yeah, it was always good seeing him on screen. I was like, oh, okay, this guy's here. He's pretty cool. Yeah, and then there's one more Tekadin person I wanted to mention. That was uh, Atra. Atra, yeah. That was uh, Mika's childhood friend, who may be the most adorable character 
uh, in the show. And if anyone hates her, then you're just a bad person. How old is Atra supposed to be in the show? Because it's a little nebulous. <laughs> uh, I always assumed that she was about the same age as Mika. Let's check. So Atra is 16. All right. Yeah. She could definitely be younger, younger, but then again. Yeah. Although I don't know if that's her age maybe in season two. So and she's Uh, somewhere from 14 uh, to 16. But that's about the same as as Mikazuki. But again, with the brutal backstory, she was homeless waiting to get a a job outside of a strip club. And that's when she met Mika and got a job with them. But wow, we, we haven't had backstories like that before in Gundam. Yeah, definitely. She was a welcome comic relief, a little dose of, I guess, uh, cuteness in the show. Maybe the only one, right? She's the only one that could kind of get away doing like the sort of childish kind of pranky stuff in a way. Atra was very much a, a short and sweet character. She yes. brightened up the show and uh, she wasn't in it a lot. She came in and out in the season and she was there when we needed her to, to cook stew. <laughs> yeah, she made the food. Never she made the, the best she... stew through those child soldiers ever ate. <laughs> I don't know um, she put in it, but man, they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and then what? how about our female protagonist, Cudelia Ina Bernstein? What did you think about Cudelia, AK. Brian? Oh, so by the way, I, I gave everyone in this show, before I, I learned all their names and I couldn't keep up, I just started naming them uh, after other characters. <laughs> so Cudelia for me was Iron Locus for a while. Iron yeah. Locus, because <laughs> you know she was analogous to Locus Klein from uh, Gundam Seed, because you have that whole sort of I'm a princessy figure who who wants to obtain peace for everyone and everyone to live a nice happy life, and I feel like Cudelia was Locus but done better. I don't feel yeah. like Locus did anything. She kind of just showed up all the time and was like I like peace, and then. She'd say, and go get him, Kira, and then, you know, he'd go fly in. But I feel like Cudelia definitely felt cliche at first, but she was, like, so sincere throughout the whole show that she really grew on me. Uh, You know, she had a real active role in the story. You know, she gets taken down a peg right away by Mika in the first few episodes. Uh, Like, she's upset. A bunch of the Tekken members died, and she blames herself, and he tells her no one dies because of one person. And it, it just, I think it, like, shatters her her sense of uh, like importance. And then from yeah. that point on, she grinds her common rep. She works in like the cafeteria, you know, helping make meals and she starts making real decisions about what she wants to do. She, you know, she gets so brazen that she signs up uh, with Tewaz. Uh, and then she agrees to work with the Montag company. So she makes a lot of big decisions and really comes real far from being the, the daughter of a, you know, a really important person on Mars and her breaking point, similar to Orga's, the death of Biscuit, her breaking point is the death of her, I don't know, assistant, whatever you want to call her, Fumitan. So I actually think that her arc and Orga's arc are very similar. Absolutely. And getting back to the Lacus comparison, I agree. She's very much what Lacus wanted to be, but none of the pop star nonsense. If anything, she's more like a Relena rival, Relena Peacecraft yeah. from, uh, from Gundam Wing. So they're very, very politically savvy. And initially you kind of think they're just bratty and not really someone you want to see on screen too much, but they do kind of grow on you. And yeah, she definitely ends up running almost her own s- subplot really about the more political intrigue that, you know, Mikazuki isn't really going to get involved in um, except just as a pilot. But hers was much more about uh, the, the politics of the season. I enjoyed it for for that, but I wouldn't say she was on my toward the top of my more favorite characters though. But she, she needed to be in the story to keep it moving along. So, thank you, Kudeli. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kudeli was the engine 
Mika and Orga were the flair. To an extent, this whole season is a glorified escort mission from a video game. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, they're protecting her, <laughs> trying to get her from point A to point B, and stuff happens on the way. There you yeah, go. And they, they just keep changing the goalposts, you know? It's yeah. First and then, it's in space, yeah. and it's on Earth, and there's a train, right. and then, yeah. Oh, um, we beat the final boss. Like, no, you didn't. You had to fight <laughs> these new guys. And then, wait, I thought we were going to point B. And, like, well, you went to point B, A, but there's a point B, B. <laughs> <laughs> and, by the way, there's an election there, and you have to win it. Uh, yeah, oh yeah <laughs> the first time in the gundam series where we hear the word election i think so <laughs> even after the calamity war they have more democracy in this timeline than they do in the universal century <laughs> well i guess one note on her her assistant fumitan so her her dying was pretty predictable but it, like biscuit it did serve a good purpose in the story the only thing i wish there is that once we realized that she was going to betray everyone i wish we would have seen like a full heel turn Instead, you know, at the end, she couldn't go through with it, and she she ended up protecting Kudeli or whatever. Right. I just think it would have been more interesting if she just went full betrayal and you know killed a Tekadin member or something. Yeah, but I don't know. We'll we'll see how that feeds into the next season, if anything. Yeah. But I do feel like that wasn't pivotal enough that it could have been done a different way. All right, your pals Gallerhorn. Gallerhorn. Let's do McGillis for oh, Reed. For, for me. I called him Iron Shar from episode one. <laughs> I, I pegged him as, as Shar right away. Do, do you do that too? Whenever you see a new Gundam series, absolutely. It's, it's not Universal Century. You say, okay, who's my Shar? Right. You look for the blonde guy or you look for the guy in a mask and you're like, well, there he is. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know exactly who would be Iron Shar between him and uh, Galio, but after I think episode two, it was very clear that, that he was going to be uh, Iron Shar. Just but I will say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that cocky attitude. Out of all the Shar clones that we've had, he's definitely the most conniving. He's he might have outsharred Shar at some I, point. I think he may, yeah, for yeah. sure. Shar's looking for revenge, but McGillis is looking for you know power. And oh boy, does he play everybody like a fiddle? McGillis, I felt, was a very good, almost understated villainous threat for this season. He, he's half an ally half a villain he's a frenemy really but, yeah the whole time you never know whose side he's yeah. on he's obviously not honest right but, yeah. but um it was very good having him on as a villain very suave and uh we felt like he really captured um what gallahorn is as a very entitled corrupt and scheming threat in this universe it took a long time to figure out what he was planning and it was confusing to me. He goes from just being part of Gallerhorn to espousing wanting to fix Gallerhorn to then all of a sudden being the masked guy. And that's when he, you know, he really becomes Char once he puts on the mask. Of course. Which, by, which, by the way, when the first time he showed up with a mask, that came out of nowhere. And I was like, whoa, there <laughs> we, we went full on Char now. It's like uh, a mask and a wig, too. Like yeah, the, bi- the biggest 80s rocker wig you've ever seen yeah and then he starts killing his friends are uh, they friends <laughs> well i did believe him when he said they were his but bonds. obviously not yeah. i think maybe he values them more as they thought they were friends bonds. yeah for sure <laughs> both of them did and he definitely is at least through season one he's clearly the best pilot in the show yeah he's a beast in a mobile suit as befitting the person that would be char but I really liked everything about him. He's, you know, one minute they need him, the next minute they're afraid of him. It does seem like there's some sort of connection between uh, Cadelia and McGillis. Like she's like met him before. And I feel like that really came out of nowhere. But 
You'll have to tune in and find out what happens in season two with uh, <laughs> Megillus Farid. A.K.A. Iron Shark. Yeah. Uh, Lord is Nario. I never felt much of a threat from Lord Farid. He was just too much behind his desk, I thought, this season. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. In season one, at least, for being the you know yeah, guy in charge bad. of the bad guys, yeah. he didn't really do much other than he, he filled a role. We don't know why he's in charge, really. Or one of the things that I found uh, hilarious about the show... I don't know if this was done intentionally, but when you first meet uh, Lord Isnario, he is in this enormous room, sitting at the smallest desk relative to the room size, <laughs> doing nothing. It was yeah. like walking into the evil boss's lair, where he just sits at his desk all day with his hands clasped, waiting for the, the good guy to come in so he can is- explain his plan. So uh, all, all you needed to know about him, I guess, was that he was evil, but yeah, he didn't really do much. That office is actually pretty cool, though. I really like the massive window that looks over the ocean. <laughs> but I agree. It's it's like a desk, and then like there's one screen on the desk. That's it. <laughs> and you just wait there for updates from whoever you sent out into the field. All right. How about McGillis' partner in crime for most of the series? Galio was a pretty, pretty cool guy, I thought. I really liked him as a character. Um, dutiful, you could say, as a Gallohorn officer. Um, but still very threatening when you get him inside a mobile suit. Agree, yeah. He's probably maybe not the second best pilot in the show. Um, Obviously, Mika kicked his ass several times, very definitively. But he's definitely probably top five in in the show. And he definitely has that that one really cool Gundam. He was, I would say, pretty noble. Even though Gallarhorn provoked a massacre at the Dort colony, he, he hated the massacre. That really wasn't what he wanted to happen. Similar to McGillis, he wanted to change Gallarhorn. So I'm a little confused yeah. exactly why McGillis killed him, but so it goes. You know, there's season two. He got used, sir. He got used and yeah. played like a like a piece on the chessboard. And yeah. when his time was up, McGillis let him die, and that was that. I also named him Iron Garma. Iron Garma. <laughs> I just realized that. Yeah, <laughs> he's essentially a competent Garma. He's what Garma wishes he was. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It was pretty cool to have somebody on the. The bad guy side that you could sort of root for in a way because, you know, he wasn't a total monster. Yeah, I was sad when he died. And I did notice that when he did when he died, there was no body. So I'm hoping that he comes back in, in season two. Well, we'll have to find out. I'm hopeful. <laughs> I want him to get revenge on McGillis. <laughs> I feel like McGillis must be stopped. You'll have to find out what happens next season, yeah. Brian. And so will the yeah. listeners. Should we move on to another category? Is there another character? Oh, no, we still got to do, do Ein. 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 Uh, Ein. <laughs> you poor soul. <laughs> you poor, poor soul. So Ayn was maybe even a more dutiful officer than Gallio. He lost his idol in Lieutenant Crank and just had the most conviction out of anyone in the show trying to get revenge. Mika kills Lieutenant Crank in what, episode two? And that just sets off Ayn on a warpath trying to kill Mika. And out of anyone who McGillis used throughout the whole show, Ayn probably ended up with the shortest stick. You know, Galio took Ayn under his wing, gave him a better mobile suit, gave him some training. Ayn goes out, gets really injured, protecting Galio. And the only way to save him, McGillis convinces Galio to give Ayn the, the surgery that gives him the uh, Alaya uh, Vignana system, right. which is just this huge sort of mark of shame to Gallarhorn because they view that system as, you know, for the, the human debris. It's beneath them, yeah. Yeah. But not only does he get the surgery, but based on the diagram, I don't think he has any more legs, if, 
if I'm correct. No, they, it looks like there's not much there. They just hooked him up and put him in blue light. <laughs> and, yeah, and he, he's sitting in this best. tank. Yeah, it's it's just awful. And he ends up piloting what I call the Iron Psycho Gundam uh, at the end. <laughs> it's like just really big and you know it's, it's just awesome, big. It's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. This big killing machine with with axes. But yeah, at the end, there's a great line. The Megillah says is when you you completely realize that he he played everybody and that he's just a psychopath. He tells Ayn he hopes Tekadin kills him because everyone is now viewing Tekadin as heroes fighting a monster. And that's exactly right, because here's this Gallarhorn guy in this enormous suit just destroying this city that these people are living in. And if Megillah is plan is to expose the corruption in Gallarhorn and get public opinion to turn against them. I mean, what better way than to, to have this underdog fighting for the people group of Tekadin take on this enormous suit piloted by this half... Monster? Yeah, this, I, I don't know. This, the eyes this guy of his own nature, organization. This, <laughs> yeah, this this man-machine you know, monster. And it, Anyway, poor Ayn. That, that guy got it the worst. Yeah, Gallarhorn could not have picked a worse, a more evil-looking mobile suit to put him in and send him out. <laughs> you know, for all their uniforms looking heroic and bright, they'd send out like a monster to go in and quell that city and, and defeat <laughs> Tekadin. It was not the right choice. Yeah, from a PR perspective. Yeah. yeah, if they sent something with like angel wings and like a sword and a shield, it would have it would have played better to visually. But yeah. oh boy, yeah, <laughs> the ghost pulled it off. Uh, the the last Gallarhorn person I wanted to mention is Carta Issue. She's the third person in our sort of uh, childhood friend triangle between yeah. McGillis and Gallio. And uh, yeah, she's just a terrible pilot. I don't know. She, she's part of the, the most powerful Seven Stars family. She's just bad at her job. I, I don't know. Did, did you take away anything else from that? Because she she lost horribly every time <laughs> that she tried to engage uh, Tekadin. See, this is why Gallahorn is in, inherently corrupt and ineffective. Because you're pretty much in power in Gallahorn just because of something an ancestor did, you know, hundreds of years ago. It's not because you're a good pilot. It's not because you're a good strategist or a good officer or a good planner. Um, and that really showed in her. <laughs> not only that, but... I, if you've ever seen Last Exile, our listeners, yes! she reminds me a lot of Maestro Delphine. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to point that out later. But she she does. Uh, she does look exact. Yeah, she looks like a an inept version of Maestro right. Delphine. Yeah, I mean, Maestro Delphine was pretty much winning until she made the mistake of, like, chaining up her enemy, like, within arm's reach, right? <laughs> yes, which was probably she the... Would, that yeah. was the best part of Last Exile, by the way. She would have won if she didn't do that one mistake. But... <laughs> Yeah, but, but uh, Carter here. Yeah, she was she was a villain we needed, a villainess we needed on screen to to really hate and view as an enemy that that we'd like to see destroyed. And right, yeah, I really enjoyed seeing her get defeated, especially since she uh, was responsible for killing, you know, a lot of Tekken people. She killed Biscuit. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I guess she, you did get a little sympathy for her at the end when you there was a flashback <laughs> where no one wanted to talk to McGillis, but she befriended him. Shot him to read, I think, uh, when he was young. He was reading that book about birds. And then it turns out that she was in love with him. And that was pretty sad when Gallio rescued her. Although she ended up dying from her injuries. He, like, whisked her away from that battle. And she actually thought that Gallio was uh, was McGillis and started confessing her love as she died. That was pretty sad. But at the same time, she killed Biscuit. So, you know what? 
she was a villainess, but she was a very human villainess. She was capable of love. You know, when she was a child, she was very kind, but she was power hungry and part of a corrupt organization. She was willing to use that power in ways that didn't create justice. And that's what happens. Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. So there are some people on the Tewaz side we could mention. There's the leader, McMurdo Bariston. I really like seeing him on screen. He was a pretty cool guy. <laughs> the only reason I bring this guy up is so that I can point out that I assume you really like him because he served cannolis with extra cream when, when Tekken visited him on his ship, which, by the way, had like a lake and trees. So was it like a colony ship or just a ship? I'm confused. Since he's the leader, Tewaz, which they told us was a, a pretty powerful corporation. But they they kept mentioning over and over that it was run like the mob, right? Yeah, it was basically I, the Mars Mafia. Yeah, I, I pretty much assumed that's why they or was it Jupiter, had cannoli. I, uh, I think they're. Oh, I think they're actually in Jupiter. I think you're right. I think you're uh, you're you're mentioning about the cannoli. I think that was just a, another mafia sort of nod. You know, they're saying, oh look, yeah. they even eat they even eat Italian pastry. <laughs> yeah. But as for his ship, I assumed he has enough money as a leader Tay was that he could put whatever artificial gravity they need to properly grow plants or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh, okay. How about our friend who runs the the harem ship, Naze Turbine? This dude wears a fedora hat in space. But he looks pretty damn good doing it. <laughs> he does, yeah. What were your thoughts when you saw the harem ship? Well, you know, we I... haven't had anything like that in Gundam before. I wasn't sure what to think at first. I was amazed by the one woman that he's probably closest to. I think her name's right. Amida. She, she wears her pants so low. It was, it was very uh, distracting. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was just very strange. We, we can get to that a little bit later. Maybe we can talk about observations. There was just a lot of sexual content in this show, which was not typical for Gundam. So I'm not really yeah. sure how I feel about that. I'm just going to strike now while the iron's hot. I liked him as a character, especially, you know, the sort of almost brotherly relationship he developed with Tekadin and Orga, especially. He was almost about the same age as Orga, it seemed, right? I think he was a little... Well, Orga's 17. I think Naze was in his 20s. Oh, God. Okay. Well, they both seem to be in somewhat similar leadership organizations of similarly sized organizations. And I don't know. I felt like he was a good addition to the story for that. He seemed like a pretty cool guy. I liked his style and all that. But the harem ship just felt sort of out of place. It almost felt fan servicey and a little cringy when I saw it. I was like, really? That that's what they're adding to this season? You know, I'm yeah, it's nice to look at and all that, but uh I, I felt like it was sort of offbeat for the rest of the season. I agree. I, I think that whole thing was a little bit out of place and I'm not really sure exactly what it added. Nothing. It could have been done differently. Yeah. I'm not necessarily one to oppose those things. If you want to put that in your show, that's fine. There's an audience for that. I just, in this show, it seemed a little out of place to me. Yeah, I could have done without it, but you know what? It happened and <sighs> <laughs> we, we move on. <laughs> yeah, we, it happened. We moved on. And overall, it, it this season was so well done that it didn't take anything away from it. So the the women on his ship, though, turned out to be some of the best pilots in the show. They sure did. Yeah. They, well, they with, schooled all the with that little clothing. It's easy to maneuver <laughs> in your cockpit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. The last Taywas person I wanted to mention was Maribit Stapleton, who to me I named her Iron Nina because <laughs> her name is actually pretty similar, Maribit Stapleton to Nina Purpleton. 
Do you think that was on purpose? She even like dresses similarly. Now, She's like a power suit. You, <laughs> now that you mention it, is it Nina Purpleton? Yeah, it's Nina Purpleton. I think you're right. Yeah, she she moved up within the corporate world. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't just the engineer, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, she was pretty interesting. I thought too. She, I I really liked seeing her on on screen. She was a good addition to the mix. I kind of liked her more than Kudeli at some points. She was a good foil for yeah. Orga to keep him in line, even though they probably never really listened to her. But yeah. I expect more from her in season two. You'll have to find out, Brian. I'll have to find out. <laughs> All right. The last thing I want to mention about characters is I nicknamed uh, the guy the guy they had to get to Arbrow to win the election. His name <laughs> is Takanosuke Makanai. Yeah. I named him Beardy Guy. Beardy Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Or just, uh, I don't know, Island Santa? Because he's yeah, got that island, cool yeah. island base, like his little <laughs> retreat. Yeah, exactly. God, Tekken Te- Te- had no idea what it was doing. Like, they showed up and, like, it, by the way, I'm not the prime minister. <laughs> yeah, it, it felt very much like a video game where, they, where yeah. you get there and, like, oh, by the way, you have to get me there. And there's also an election and I have to win it. Yeah, you, you like, deliver the king's sword and, like, you get there and, like, oh, there's a new king, actually. And you're like, oh, great. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, like, like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but he he was an interesting character. I liked how he was a pretty deceptive guy too. I mean, he comes off as so grandfatherly and stuff, and he kind of manipulates them to his own ends. There's that scene where his animation sort of changes. His face looks the same in almost every scene, right? Just his eyes almost seem closed, and he's smiling and very very warm. And then there's that one scene, I forgot who, I think it was just talking to Kudelia alone, and his face does change, and he really does kind of reveal that he's a bit sneaky and not necessarily playing with all his uh, cards on the table. He clearly wants to be the prime minister again, and he he gets taken in to, to get him there. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Political power and get me out of exile. <laughs> now, did they ever explain what he did to get exiled? I mean, for all we know, it was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I... I Based on the tone, I, I guess I would have assumed that Gallerhorn manipulated Arbrow. The, the exile to some extent. Okay. But you're right, I don't think we ever got a reason. Okay. Well, he's probably well if he's talk if he's willing to talk to Kudelia, I'm guessing he's at least somewhat pro, you know, independence and autonomy for Mars. Plus he but, still has the favor of the people, so it couldn't have been that bad, I guess. Yeah. Well, either way, I guess that's enough for Gallerhorn to talk to whoever they have to talk to to, to get him voted out of office. All right, how about we move to mobile suits? And we're going to cut it there for this episode. Tune in next time for the conclusion to our Iron-Blooded Orphan Season 1 review, where we discuss the mobile suits and our overall thoughts on the series. Until next time, keep those Minofsky reactors warm.